Why don't you pray with me before we get into God's Word? Father in heaven, um, we stand amazed that we can address you as a father. There was a time when that was not so, both historically and then personally for us spiritually before Christ. And so we stop and marvel that you are our Father who is in heaven. And Lord, I pray that you would move in our midst today, that we would have ears to hear your word. I pray that we would have some semblance of the amazing weight of being able to pray thy will be done, that you have invited us to pull down heaven to earth through our prayers. That's incredible, Lord. We thank you that you have looked to us with such dignity and grace. And Father, I pray that you would keep me from error, that I would only speak true things about who you are and what you have said. Help me, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine that you and your family live in a kingdom, but you guys are, you're poor, and so you're on the outskirts of the kingdom if you've been on a mission trip, think of it like that. That's, that's where you guys live. But you can see the castle on the hill. That is one thing your little poverty space provides, the beautiful view of the castle. Now, you've never met the king. Nobody's ever met the king. But you know that he exists because you've heard his decrees, and you've actually seen some of his works displayed throughout there. And you know that he's good and righteous and just, but holy. Now I want you to imagine someone comes up to your house and says, I want you and your family to come with me. Now typically you would look on this with some caution, but there's the royal emblem on their carriage, and so you say, okay, and you get in, and you go. And they start taking you and winding you around to places you've never been before, and before long you realize you're heading in the trajectory of the castle. This is kind of wild, you've never been in this part of town. And before you get to this great gate, it opens up, and you guys go right through. And before you realize it, you are standing at the door of the castle. Now your heart is racing, and all you can blurt out is, how can this be that we are here? And then this strange chaperone slowly opens the door and says, well, the king is your father, and his kingdom is expanding, and he wanted to show you and your family what he is up to. This is what it would have been like for the disciples to hear what Jesus is saying to them on how to pray. We've been going through a series on the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This idea of being able to address God as our Father would have been foreign to the disciples. It would have been an amazing thing to be told when you pray. This is now how you pray if you don't believe me. Listen to John 5. Jesus answered the Pharisees, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Catch this. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. 
It's an amazing thing to pray to our Father. So today we continue on in the Lord's Prayer, and we are at the part where it says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is really a continuation of the theme, Thy kingdom come. So it was Thy kingdom come, which we were in two weeks ago. Now it's Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This was a a more challenging message for me to write. Typically, we just go through books of the Bible, and we just have a passage, and we just try to tell the truth about what that passage says. But what do you do when all you have is, thy will be done, and go? What do you say? Well, as this short text twisted and turned through my mind this week, there were two initial questions that were just kind of screaming at me from the text that I couldn't shake, and I just mulled them around for a while. So this message is going to look a little bit different. This is the roadmap. We're going to start by wrestling with these first two initial questions that were just reaching at me from the text. And then the back half will be three reasons why we pray God's will to come. Three effects that it has for us personally. So this is where we're going. You're going to wrestle with me through these two questions, and then we'll get going. The first one is this. Jesus tells us to pray to God, thy will be done. Here's my question. Why does Jesus tell us to ask God to do what he wants to do? Jesus says, when you pray, one of the things you do is you say, God, do what you want to do. That's what he's saying, right? You tell the sovereign creator of the universe, won't you do what you want to do? Why does he do that? Well, there is a depth of mystery here, which we will never know until we see him face to face. But I think there are at least two things that this reveals to us. The first one is God's incredible love. And the second one is our amazing value. See, God doesn't need us. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He doesn't invite us to participate in his kingdom because he is unable to make it come about. But God created us out of the overflow of his love. That's why God creates. It bursts out of him because he is a God of love, and it expresses itself in creativity. And to be made in God's image, which is what we are, is an incredible reality. And so when he tells us to ask him, To do what you want to do, he's saying, it is not a small thing to be made in my image. I was actually very serious when I created you. I was not patronizing you. I was not saying, that's cute. You can can pretend like you have a role to play. No, you, you really do have a role to play in heaven coming to earth. Yes, it's all God's power, but the king has decreed that some of what I'm going to accomplish, I'm going to wait for you to ask me to do it because you are going to participate. I'm going to dignify who you are as my image bearers and give you a role to play in this. We have an audience with the king, but more than that, he has given us his ear and he said, I want you to participate. In Esther, we see how astonishing this would have been to the ancient mindset of having an audience with the king. 4.11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter 
to so that he might, might live. Through Christ, God the King has held out the golden scepter to us. And it says, you may now come in. Before this brought terror, now we're invited by the King. Out of love, he created us. And in our dignity, he calls us to participate in what he is up to. The psalmist glories in this reality, writing, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And you have put all things under his feet. This is what he's saying. Who are we that you would be mindful of us? But you really are. You have given us dominion over the works of your hand. So if you ever need assurance that you are valuable, that you are significant, we have it here in Jesus' instruction to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He's saying, your father, the king, his reign is expanding on earth. And he has decided that some of what he has decreed to pass will come through your request. That is an amazing thing. I think that's one of the reasons why God or Jesus asks us to ask God to do what he wants to do. The second question I, I wrestled with is this. What does it look like when God's will is done in heaven? See, this, this prayer assumes that there is a, a disparity, a, a chasm between God's will being done on heaven and God's will being done on earth. This is why Jesus says, pray that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. This assumes God's will is not being done on earth. So in what way is God's will not being done on earth in a way that it's being done in heaven? Well, God's will is this. Shalom restored. This is God's will for shalom to be restored. Shalom is a Hebrew word that the English language has no counter for, but it's a word that that conjures up a deep and abiding peace, restoration, love. It's all encompassed in this great word of shalom, and in case you had any illusion that we had reached a state of shalom on earth, I imagine that this election season has disabused you of that. There is no shalom, and the people that were Uh, hoping to elect to help create shalom. In the process of trying to elect them, it is more ugly than it's ever been. This shows just how bent the reality is. And so Jesus is saying, pray down this shalom. Paul speaks to this in Romans 8. For creation, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The Apostle Paul is giving language to this cacophony of groans that is happening all over the earth, whether it's the hurricanes that were happening in Florida, or it's the vitriol in our uh, election season, or 10,000 other broken hearts that exist in this room. There is not shalom yet. 
But God's will is that shalom would reign. It is coming in part, but it will one day be fully realized. And this is why we pray for God's will to come on earth as it is in heaven. I just finished going through a book by N.T. Wright called Simply Jesus, and he talks about what the kingdom is. And this recurring frame or refrain that he says is, the Christian is called to show the world this is what it looks like when God is king. This is what it looks like when God is king. It looks like peace and love and restoration and forgiveness. One of my favorite movies is Forrest Gump. If you haven't seen it in a while, see it again, because it is amazing. And there is this scene at the end, spoiler alert, where he's at uh, Jenny's deathbed. And it's the most beautiful scene in the movie. And she says to him, uh, were you scared in Vietnam? And he says, yeah. And then he stops and he says, well, and he says, there was often a break in the rain. And when that happened, you could see the stars. And then it was okay. And then he kind of drifts off and starts going to these different uh, transcendental moments that he had throughout his journeys and talking about how beautiful it was. These moments where he saw heaven breaking down into earth. And, and one of the final things he says, he says, when the sun would rise in the desert, and it has a picture of him running through the desert, he said, I didn't know where earth stopped and heaven began. It's such a beautiful picture. Where does earth stop and where does heaven begin? This is what the Christian is called to participate in when we pray, thy will be done. Wherever we exist, we are showing the world the crossfade of heaven and earth. This is what it looks like when God is king. This is a glimpse of it. The book of Revelation gives us a a vignette of the collision of heaven and earth. And this is a picture of our ultimate uh, home. It says this, Then I, the Apostle John, saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea, which represents chaos, was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. So friends, this is where the story is headed. Shalom is being restored. And we are called to participate in that. And to bring as many people into it as we can through the proclamation of the good news of forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. The reason our sins need to be forgiven is because sin will corrupt shalom. And so we need a covering. We need to be remade into new creation. And this is what Christ has called. All right. Having addressed these initial big questions, we're going to now zone in a little bit. So what are the effects of praying God's will for us personally? now that we got the 30,000-foot view. How does it impact us? Especially in light of the reality that God doesn't need us. So what, do we, what happens in us? How do we reorient our minds when we pray for God's will? The first one is this. Praying for God's will frees us from the crushing burden of constructing our purpose. Let me say that again. 
It frees us from the crushing burden of constructing our purpose. Well, my thoughts might be interesting, but it's important to hear what the Bible actually says about it. So for all of these, I'll put some Bible under it. Philippians 3, Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So what do I mean by praying God's will frees us from the crushing burden of constructing our purpose? Well, as we've talked about and I talked about a couple weeks ago, this idea that we live in a radically individualistic culture, it's a tough word, this has given us a burden that we've never experienced before, namely the burden of you decide why you exist. You decide what your purpose is and what your meaning is. This is seen in such platitudes like the world is your oyster or just follow your dreams or be true to yourself. Now, of course, there is nothing inherently wrong with, quote unquote, following your dreams. That's a lot of the reason people come to L.A. is to follow their dreams. But here's the problem. When we think that we are the kings and queens of our own destiny, our world becomes so unstable because if we don't make the exact right choice, well, then our purpose just dissipates. We are responsible for deciding why we exist. And we live in a time where there are 10 million things you could do. And so it's perpetual analysis paralysis because you have to make the right choice. It's crushing. It's a crushing burden. The Uh, president of Princeton Theological Seminary, wrote this in a book. At commencement ceremonies over the last few decades, we told our graduates to dream their own dreams, do their own thing, work hard, and they could be whatever they wanted to be. What we did not tell them was how they could know who it is that they want to be. We might as well have told the graduates, sorry, we have nothing for you. You're on your own. When we stopped burdening our youth with any claims from tradition, not to mention a sacred one, we assumed that individuals just inherently and independently know how to put life together for themselves. But by removing them from the claims of previous generations and religious traditions, we only made it impossible for them to have a means of discerning this basic identity issue. And this is not theory for me. This is what happened to me. As, as some of you know, I used to be in a band, which was cool and it was fun. The problem is you wake up and you're 25 and you say, so how do you do life again? Is this really all there is? Because I'd put all my eggs in that basket. The point was to make it. But that is just such a small reality for an image bearer of God, to live for yourself glory. So this is precisely how praying thy will be done frees us from the burden of constructing our deepest purpose and our deepest meaning. It recognizes that God is at work. He is in the business of invading earth with heaven, and he has called us to participate in that no matter what we do. So, of course, it matters greatly what you do. And if you're in that season right now of trying to discern, what is my next step? Where should I go? Where should I work? By all means, seek godly counsel and try to make a good decision, but understand that the whole universe doesn't hinge on this decision. Because no matter what you do, 
you can ground your reality in the higher calling of what God is doing. Namely, he is bringing heaven to earth. No matter what you do, there are other image bearers around you who need to hear this good news. And it is freeing from the crushing burden of, if I don't make the exact right decision for my life, I'm outside of God's will and my life is meaningless. That's not true. Whether you're a barista, whether you work downtown, whether you're a student, whether you're unemployed, no matter what you do, you can always plug in to what God is about. And this is the point that Paul's making in this Philippians passage. Paul was, by all accounts, a successful person in his field. In the verses preceding the text above, he actually gives us part of his impressive resume. He says this, if anyone, um, if anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. That's kind of impressive. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then here it is. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because it's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. His entire identity was once wrapped up in his life as a Pharisee. But then he had that Matthew 13, 44 moment where he realized the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. And when you find that man, all the other treasures become so small in comparison. And you realize the small world of self-glory. You can imagine it like this. Imagine that there's a photographer at the Grand Canyon. But on their camera, they have a macro lens. So all they are zoomed into is one pebble. And they are thinking that this is really something. And they're at the Grand Canyon. And so you come over and you give them a wide-angle landscape lens. And they switch that out. And then, boom, all of a sudden, they see the grand glory of the whole canyon after thinking that they were seeing something with their macro lens. A little pebble compared to the Grand Canyon. This is what it looks like when we pray for God's will to be done. And this is also the key to mental health in a lot of ways. If your peace or your security is attached to anything on this earth, you are on very shaky ground because it's not promised to you. What happens if it's taken away? What happens if all your value is in your job or your marriage and they totally crumble? You are devastated because that was your God. That's what you looked to. Later on in Philippians, Paul speaks to this point. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, we love that verse. We love putting it on our whatever that's called for football players because God wants you to win the game, right? No. God wants you to be content no matter what the outcome is. That's what Paul's learned. What are all the things he can do? Be content no matter what comes. And I love how he calls it a secret. I have learned the secret. What is the secret? Well, the secret is realizing you are Christ's. And that is the most secure place you can be. There is an inheritance being guarded by God himself that is just on the other side of, uh, of the horizon that cannot be taken away. So he says, okay, I've learned the secret. I can be brought low temporarily because I am Christ's. 
Praying for God's will frees us from the crushing burden of constructing an identity. Number two, praying for God's will embraces the sanctifying work that God is doing in us. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 3. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I love these verses because of how directly it addresses the question, what is God's will for my life? Well, the Bible answers it. It's probably not how we were hoping. I'd like it to tell me what I should do. And he says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. If you aren't familiar with the term sanctification, it just means to, to be made holy, to be set apart. Now, you might say, well, I thought when I came to Christ, in that moment, I was, I was made holy, I was made pure, it, it was finished, and you are, you are right in that moment. Positionally, before God, you are totally righteous. But here's the problem for us. God is actually serious about making us holy. He is actually serious about bringing about what he accomplished positionally in reality, and that is a horrifying notion to somebody like me. Because I have so much work to be done. But God was serious. Hebrews 10, 14, which we referenced at the membership meeting last week. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. In Christ, you are perfectly holy. But God means now to bring that about. But friends, I think some of us need to reframe the way we think about sanctification and holiness. This language may conjure up some really unfortunate connotations rather than explaining the glorious restorative work that God means to accomplish in you. So maybe this will be a helpful way to think about it. In our Lord's Prayer, we pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that the deep and illuminating holiness would pervade earth as it is in heaven, every inch of it. This also means that he means to make us into the type of creatures that can feel at home there. Because if earth became heaven right now, I would not be ready. I would be very uncomfortable. And that's why God is sanctifying us. He means to make us feel at home when heaven comes to earth. To have deep lungs that can breathe in holy air. This is what he's doing Sanctification is an amazing work because we have appetites for things that destroy us. This is the essence of sin. It's not getting the wrong answers on an arbitrary test. It's looking at something that will kill you and saying, that is beautiful. And it's looking at something that is beautiful and saying, that is boring. This is our problem. We don't have an appetite for what brings the deepest, richest joy. And so God is going to work that out in us. And it is a painful process for me, anyways. I was having a conversation with a few buddies from church this week around the topic of, of lust and how shame cannot live in the light. And one of them was uh, sharing their story of how they found freedom from pornography. And it was this beautiful story. They said that they tried white-knuckling it in sheer willpower. But the pivotal moment for them was when, and he said, it was when I realized that this is not what I was created for, that Jesus' command to not lust wasn't arbitrary, 
He said it because he knows that it corrupts God's design for my joy and for his glory. It is the true enemy of intimacy. This is what thrust him on a trajectory away from poison. And he said, it's been a decade since I've looked at porn. That is powerful. Getting a vision for why God actually means to make us holy. He means to give us life. And he is the enemy of what will kill us. This is the essence of sanctification. Not just being good religious people who follow rules, but having the Holy Spirit, God's spirit of holiness in us, renovate our entire beings so that when heaven comes to earth, we say, home. This now is home. 1 Corinthians 2.9 No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you have a vision of this? of the high country that we are on a trajectory for. Heaven is coming to earth, but before that happens, heaven has to get into us. Third reason praying for God's will, what effect it has on us. And it is this, and this is the final reason. Praying for God's will aligns our feeble flesh with our submitted spirits. Matthew 26, this is the longer text from Gethsemane. I almost broke shortened it, but I wanted to sit with it together, so bear with me as I read through all of it. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Here Jesus is just hours away from his horrific crucifixion where he would shed his blood to cover the sins of his bride, the church, and the anticipation of this would have been torturous more than is conceivable. But even more than the physical pain, he was going to face the full force of God's wrath against sin, and he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The perfect relationship of love between the Father and the Son in that awful hour would be broken, and this is the cup that Jesus Christ had to drink to the bitter dregs to redeem his bride. But in this intimate vignette, we get a glimpse into the soul of the Savior, into his full divinity, where he says, I am willing to do what only I can do. But also into his humanity, where he confesses, the flesh is weak. And even here, our Savior is our rabbi. He teaches us how to bring our feeble flesh into alignment with our submitted spirit by confessing our weakness to the Father and then submitting our will to his. Now, Jesus knew why he had to drink the cup. He knew 
what he was accomplishing. But the truth is, some of the seasons where God breaks us to our knees, we have no idea what he's doing. And so the only way to get through the garden is to know who your father is. It's to know the character of your father. To know that pain is never wasted. Ever. Hebrews 12 gives us a beautiful insight into what propelled the Lord to accomplish this. It says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And hidden in this scripture is the key to Jesus' ability to pray for God's will to be done. He did it because of the joy that was set before him. So yes, we know that there is joy on the other side of the horizon. But we must not too speedily go over Jesus' grief. Weeping must come before joy. It is okay to weep. This is why we don't preach positive thinking and we aren't escapists. Our flesh really is weak. And there really are losses that we need to come to terms with, that we need to lament over. I think it's about two-thirds of the psalms are lament psalms. And so maybe you're in that season right now where your spirit is submitted, you know God is good, but your flesh is not aligned like Jesus wasn't in that moment. He had to bring it into alignment, help me, pray with me. He knew the character of the Father, that he is good, but he had to have that space of grief. A few weeks back, this quote hit me like a, a cinder block of grace. It's by John Piper. He said this, Occasionally, weep deeply over the life you hoped would be. Grieve the losses. Then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. That is so helpful to me. Jesus gives us the freedom to weep deeply. There are things we need to grieve. What in your life? How does your life look different than you thought it would right now? I know there are a thousand ways I thought my life would look different. At 33, I thought I'd have a family. That's one of those. And I don't. And that's okay. So you weep and you grieve and you say, all right, Lord, you're doing something here and I trust you even though I might not know what it is. What is that for you? Maybe your parents are getting dementia and you say, how could a good God allow this? So you grieve that and that's okay. God knows. And then you trust God and know that he is working something together for your good. So friends, we are free to admit our sorrows and our disappointments and our doubts. God can handle that. Yet we know that for all we don't understand, there is something that we do know. Our Father is more good, more loving, more kind than we could ever imagine. And he has demonstrated this by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem you back to himself. So for the thousand things you don't understand, when you look to Christ it silences all those because you can say, if God is this for me, surely he will not withhold anything else from me ultimately. And that's helpful. So yes, we pray with Christ, thy will be done. Or as George Herbert says in one of his beautiful poems, for my heart's desire unto thine is bent, but I aspire to a full consent. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are more radically for us than we ever could understand.
that the work that you are accomplishing in this world and in us is creating something more beautiful, more eternal, more joy-giving than we could ever even think of. Father, I know that there is work that your spirit needs to do right now, that there are broken hearts that have not healed well, that there have been casts set in some people's hearts, and when they thought they healed, they healed still broken. They're still bitter. They are maybe even questioning whether they believe any of this stuff. There's nothing I can say, Lord, to convince them it's the work of your spirit. So right now I pray that your spirit would assure them of your grace, assure them of your love, revive their faith, give them eyes to look to Christ, where you said this, this is what I've done for you. This is how much I love you. This is how committed I am to being glorified through your salvation. So, Father, help us to believe when we find it hard to believe. And all these things, Lord, may your will be done.